Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the QCG podcast, Let's Talk. My name is Juan Novoa. I am the consulting lead at QCG, and I will be your host today. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about the changing landscape for job evaluation and what that means for organizations. And for those of you who are not familiar with QCG or this podcast, uh, QCG is a reward and employee experience consultancy based in London. And what we're trying to do with this podcast is shine a light, discuss, explore topics that are high up on the reward and HR agenda. With us today, we have a very special guest, Alan Hurst. Alan is the founder and managing director of QCG. He has a long career. He worked and had several roles in the civil service. Then he moved to consultancy with the firm that at the time was known as Towers Perrin, where he was a principal. And then in the year 2000, Alan set up and launched QCG. Uh, welcome, Alan. Good morning, Juan. Nice to talk to you. Very, very good to have you here. And I uh, think it would be really good today to benefit from your experience. I'm pretty sure you have some stories to share with us on what is a, a, a topic that some people may not find overly exciting and, and you wouldn't blame them. Um, but job evaluation is very important, very topical these days. For those of you who are not familiar with job evaluation, it is the process that is followed to create an internal hierarchy of jobs. So it allocates a relative job size or value to each role in an organization. And then that information is used to create pay structures to support wider reward decisions, uh, to test uh, equal pay claims. So it's clearly very topical and very important. So Alan, why, why don't we start off by you telling us a little bit about your initial experience with job evaluation. What was that like? When did you first come across it? What was that experience like for you? Okay, thanks, Juan. Um, when, you, when you said you wanted me to do this, it was quite scary to think back that uh, people and the jobs they do has probably in quite a direct way touched my life over about five decades. Um, I'm glad we're not on screen because people won't see how grey my hair is and how many wrinkles I have. So um, so the first time would be probably when I was dealing with pay negotiations um, as part of what was the Cabinet Office. Um, and we clearly had to look at what the level of pay was for various civil service grades and comparing them with what was paid for those grades in other sectors, whether that was the wider public sector. And, and I have to say, the uh, processes for doing that was fairly archaic. Um, it was based on 
what we would describe now, I suppose, as whole job comparisons, looking at accounts clerks or whatever sort of roles existed typically in both public and private sectors, and then looking at what the level of pay was for those. And that was a form of job evaluation. Beyond that, um, my career moved um, both in the UK and overseas involved with really what you'd describe as efficiency studies in relation to the way work was done. And whilst that was a lot about levels of resourcing, um, a central part of it was what levels should the work be placed at, i.e. grading, as we call it today, and, and what price would you put upon it? And that involved different systems of job evaluation, which I'm sure we'll come to talk about later. And even now, um, in quite a pioneering way, I still feel there's loads to do about improving the way job evaluation is used and abused in, uh, in, in the working lives of people today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's very interesting is in you're referring to job evaluation, there's references to comparison to other jobs, to other sectors, equivalencies, uh, pricings, and all of those are applications that are still in place today. Um, and what's interesting is how, how the landscape, the context to a lot of those applications has changed and what that means. So we're off to a great start. And Alan, from what I understand, when you were at the Treasury, you were involved on, on the conception or developing a requirement for a computer-based job evaluation system that would help standardize the approach to job evaluation in the civil service. And then when you moved over to Tower Sparing, you were actually part of the team that delivered that system and, and others that followed. So when you look at the introduction at this, this system, and let's focus on the, the particular one for the civil service that is called a JEX. And back then, what were the main drivers behind the introduction of that system? Okay, so by that time, which was early 90s, I was running a division in the Treasury which was primarily focused on efficiency reviews uh, for the Treasury uh, looking at levels of efficiency right around government. And it probably is hard to believe, but I had about 50 people working for me who were uh, involved in these broader reviews, but almost every one involved how many people do you need, what grade they should be, um, and how should the work be organised. So job evaluation was a central part of what all those 50 people were doing, and probably hundreds, if not thousands of people right around government. And in one sense, it was a most exciting time for job evaluation. Uh, because what was on the horizon was the opportunity for what was called computer-aided job evaluation. So the system before that had all been interviews, written job descriptions, qualifying and checking the job descriptions, organising panels of people to look at the written job descriptions and rowing and arguing 
in smoke-filled rooms with wet towels around their heads about what the grading decisions should be for hundreds of posts. It was an industry, a massive industry, and it wasn't just in government. Um, I'll come on to talk about other systems later. Um, and the prospect of putting all of this nonsense into some sort of computer system was really exciting. Um, and I didn't know at the time that I would be headhunted from the Treasury Division looking at doing this to the consultancy that was appointed to do it. And it sounds a bit incestuous, but I can assure you it wasn't. Um, and, and so that change was a massive one in terms of the efficiency of job evaluation. Um, it was two or three years in development, and then it was rolled out under Towers Perrin licensing arrangements to pretty much every government department and agency and quite a lot of the arm's length bodies around government. So probably impacting on the jobs of half a million to three quarters of a million people that worked in the public sector. Um, and uh, it, it was one of the factors that got me promoted to being a partner in Towsbury, so I should be very grateful for it. Um, but, but I guess one of the fundamentals of it was that it didn't actually change the factors and weightings that were driving the outcome of a job evaluation uh, result. So while it was transformational in terms of the efficiency, it really changed the efficacy of job yeah. evaluation. Yes, but the sign of it, it was more about automation of the process and, and maybe some standardization. But the the yeah. fundamentals behind the, the approach seem to have remained the same. It sounds like you were probably very busy back then <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. in that project. And, and so we're looking at roughly 30 years ago when that happened. So since then, how have you seen the use of job evaluation evolve? Okay, so um, I guess the uh, focus of job evaluation during that period of the 90s was, was about people ensuring that the system was most effective and uh, efficient. But as I say, it still retained the, um, the essential characteristics. Uh, by 2000, some of us who were more interested in change started saying, but look, what we're measuring here are inputs and processes in, in terms of what leads to a job evaluation score and not much on the outcomes. Um, and there was a project I was involved in at around 2000, just about the time that I moved from Taos Perrin to run this business, where we were starting to get some traction in thinking about, well, shouldn't we be worrying less about how big the budget is that somebody is managing, how many staff they have, and more about how they use the skills that they have to ensure those staff and those budgets are used more effectively. And 
if you had a system which put a lot of weight on the staff and the budget, it was easy for people to say, oh, I, you know, I'm going to get 10 more staff and then I'll get more points and then I'll, I'll have a bigger job and then I'll have a bigger paycheck as well. And that was clearly not working. So in the early days of Taos Perrin, we started to open up the debate uh, with our clients about whether a more contribution-based approach could of itself um, lead to a, a better outcome in terms of job evaluation. That was the very early days of thinking about contribution models, which we're going to come on to talk about uh, in more detail. I think the other thing that happened in that era was whilst the equal pay legislation that occurred in the early 70s um, became, became, it took that long, but it, it became more serious in the sense that when equal pay cases were being taken, the defence against an equal value claim was that you had a job evaluation system in place. So whilst there was some uh, alignment of clients' ideas around a more contribution-based approach, they weren't prepared to move away from job evaluation as a defence mechanism against an equal value claim. So what we did at that time was to develop the QCG job evaluation system called Job Profiler, which took away the numbers of staff and the size of budgets and focused on what managers did with those to deliver the outcomes of the work they were doing. And that was an, a next stage of transformation, which I'm really pleased to say we were at, at the centre of. Yeah, and it's very interesting to see how even then there were already some challenges to the accepted wisdom around uh, job evaluation. And, and I think that fundamental discussion about looking at inputs and processes versus what those are used for, so what outcomes are you trying to achieve, is very much at the center of, of what we're seeing today, actually. And what's interesting is that you were having these conversations already 30 years ago, and still today, we're seeing a lot of the same practices. There's elements of conception behind the system. Uh, there's also the type of system that is being used, those analytical factor-based systems versus other models that we'll come on to, to discuss in a moment. Um, so it's, it's easy to have a conversation around different methods, approaches, the virtues and the problems. Uh, of each one of them. Um, but if we're looking at this from a business point of view, which uh, is something that we tend to do in our work, there's a, there's a big question there about what are the biggest risk areas for organizations when it comes to job evaluation, especially in more recent years. And when you look at how the nature of work has evolved, how type of jobs have evolved, uh, legislation and the enforcement 
of legislation has evolved. Uh, the culture has evolved. Now there's a much greater demand for transparency, for instance. So those days where the evaluation was the domain of just a handful of experts locked up in some dark room are, are no longer in tune with the times that we live in today. So when you look at all this, that there must be risks for organizations of sticking with the older or the more traditional way of doing things. What are those risks for you? What do those risks look like from, from where you stand? Okay, thanks, Rob. Um, I'd like to take one small step backwards and perhaps articulate why uh, a lot of organizations had a real fear for change. I'm sure you're going to talk a bit about what it was like working at Hay and the Hay job evaluation system. So it's quite interesting that if we go back 10 or 15 years, we were probably in a highly competitive situation as between selling the Tails Perrin system and the Hay system. Um, but, but those systems, whichever, whether they were Willis Tails Watson, as it developed to be Hay or, or the Mercer system, had quite a lot of attractiveness to employers. Um, they felt they had the protection from equal value. They felt that they had an independent basis for looking at job evaluation that took away the risks of managers wanting to talk up jobs and um, get more money for their employees and what would have, it, would have itself led to internally equity issues potentially. So it was seen as a safe haven. Um, and in Hay in particular, if I think about the different bits of the public sector, um, Hay was very strong in education and um, local government because it gave a degree of transparency across the diverse organisations within the sector and transparency of levels of pay between the sector and other sectors. So there was a great sort of um, value. People at Hay used to talk about Hay being the gold standard. And in some respects, it was because of its history, but it was also locked into a single way of doing it. And that leads on nicely to, well, what are the risks of that? And you've alluded to some of them. One is... Um, the whole question of it being, whether it was Tauspering or anyone else's, a system that was owned by experts who understood the system, the algorithms and how they worked, the factors and how you made judgments about the use of the factors. And it was a mysterious black box of things that were respected, but at the same time hated because people didn't understand why they seemed to be conscious of really doing a good job and increasing their contribution, but they couldn't get anybody to listen and understand how they felt they weren't being fairly rewarded for that contribution. So that whole transparency issue has been bubbling away for a long time. And more recently, with the credit crunch and uh, the sense of uh, costs of running HR systems have become much more to the fore, 
the the cost of buying or licensing these systems and having loads of experts who use them adds to the disadvantages that that the transparency also uh, provided or the lack of transparency provided so that people then became okay do we really need to do all this and so you know versions of hay and versions of jegs and versions of other systems were cut down to be more simple and more transparent to use. But the final thing that really has put the nail in the coffin of these uh, rather outdated systems has been the nature of work changing, which has been going on through technology for quite some time, but to a really clear uh, new dimension with people working away from home where they're they don't have a set of fixed objectives anymore in the sense that they have a job that they know what's expected of them and they're measured on what they contribute in the delivery of that job. We've had to move away from a system where employers don't trust their employees to do get on and do their job because they can't sit on their shoulders anymore. And so this final point for me has created the situation where it doesn't work anymore. The only way that you're going to have people feeling good about what they do, what they contribute, being properly measured, if it's totally transparent and they can see what it is they're being rewarded for. And that's where the contribution model that we have now developed really comes into its own. Well, that's very good, actually. And, and there's something that Johnson me from what you were just saying and is I think it will be very difficult to challenge or question the rigor behind many of the more uh, conventional or long-standing methodologies which clearly it's there and historically you'd say well no matter how good the job evaluation system is it can only be as good as, as its application so it's always been very important to have your experts and all this. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about as, as you were sharing your views was that it's, it's not only about the application, but also about the relevance of the system to the business, uh, to the sector, to the culture, and to the wider environment that sets the backdrop against which a lot of these job evaluations are taking place. Um, I think your ideas were just very nicely dovetailing into the last question that I had for you today, which is then how do contribution-based models fit into this picture? And in a way, why are they a good alternative to these legacy systems that have survived for so long that are used in so many organizations or that increasingly could be seen as not, not so fit for purpose anymore. So what is it about the contribution-based models that really sets them apart and provides a better option for organizations? Well, the, um, the areas of uh, risk that we talked about on, in the previous section was clearly relevant here. I, th I think that the, um, the world is changing in one other 
respect to that is people taking ownership of their work, the world of work. Um, and they want to know much more about how uh, their pay is being determined and what the influences are. So that adds to the transparency argument um, and supports the idea that people will become more engaged with work when they understand that their contribution is being recognised through what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I think I encapsulate this with thinking about how it was 10 years ago, say, when we were saying to clients, well, you, do, you use these factor-based systems and uh, I, you keep telling us you're frustrated with them um, and it costs too much. Um, but what, what is getting in the way of you changing? And it was fear of change, I think, to a very large extent. And we were saying, well, at least think about a different sort of approach. And I think over the 10-year period, we've taken 10 to 15 or 20 clients through a process of moving away from pounds for points, analytical black box stuff, into something more open and more transparent. But the world, the world of work changing as it has so fundamentally and recently has reinforced the need for that change. When we talk to clients, they're not saying we want to think about it. They're saying we want to do it. And when they say to us, what can we do? Ten years ago, we will be saying, think about it. Now we're saying you'd be mad not to do this. I think that encapsulates where I've got to in this and the journey that I've been on over these five decades. Yeah, and, and I think that that does perfectly encapsulate it. And, and I definitely agree with you. Uh, the conversation is not new. You were saying yourself three decades ago, you're starting to have a debate about contribution. What's been clear is that the environment has changed, culture has changed requirements, employee expectations have changed. There's a greater need for simplicity. And whereas in the last probably 10 to five years, as you said, the conversation was what you should do it. Now the conversation is you can't afford not to probably. You really need to look into this. And I think that brings this, this conversation to a very good uh, ending. Thank you so much, Alan, for sharing. Very, very helpful. You're very welcome. You, you know very well that I enjoy talking, so it was a pleasure to spend time <laughs> with you this morning. Yeah, and I'm very proud that we managed to keep it under a half hour. So very, very good, even better then. And also thank you to everyone listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast and that you join us for future podcasts. In the meantime, we invite you to keep an eye on the articles and other information that we publish on our website. You can find us on www.qcg.co.uk. And so until next time, uh, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.